continuing in Theology Untangled. This is a series where we have asked you, church members, church attenders, those who would be connected to Eternal City Church, what questions do you have about the Bible, about theology, about God? And we have sought to answer your questions from the Bible, which is our authority. The scriptures alone give us ultimate authority. Now, reason and logic are helpful. They are gifts of God. But reason and logic alone cannot lead us to truth. We need revealed truth. And this is what we have in the Word of God. We can find out a lot about God from what He has made, the book of creation. We can study it. We can examine it. We can test it. And we can learn a lot about God from what He has made. But we can't learn specific things about God and especially about how to be made right with him. We need special revelation. This is what the Bible is. And so tonight, we are going to hit a topic that is the cause of much, much fire in the culture. Okay? We're going to talk about women in ministry, which deals with the topic of egalitarian versus complementarian versus, you know, women should be in some circles, seen and not heard, or women should be heard and platformed. It depends all on where you come from. Okay? So not only is the church uh, in a big mess over this issue, and it does need untangled, but the world is having a lot of struggles in the area of male and female, gender, gender roles. I mean, it's, it's a mess out there, right? So we're going to try to, by God's grace, untangle these three questions, basically. Now, there was more questions on this subject, but I don't think we can handle more than three in one sermon. So here they are. What is the role of women in the church? Does the Bible teach that women cannot be pastors? Was the pro... Well, that should say prohibition. It says probation. Sorry about that. <laughs> Was the prohibition of women to teach in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 because of immature women seeking to be teachers in Ephesus? Now, that was a very specific question we were asked, but it deals with uh, the whole topic of women in ministry, okay? So, was the prohibition of women to teach in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, which clearly uh, it does say they're not allowed to teach, was that because... There was a bunch of immature women seeking to be teachers in Ephesus. All right, so we'll deal with these questions and many more as we travel down this dangerous path. So listen, here, here's my encouragement to you, okay? I have friends and family members who do not agree with me on this issue, okay? I have very strong convictions about what the Bible teaches on these issues. I have worked through the texts. I have studied. I have thought. I have prayed. I have, with gentleness and respect, argued with the other sides on these positions. I've heard good arguments uh, against what I believe. And so what I'm giving to you is not what I've come to just from studying this week. This is something that, that I'm settled on, that I think the Bible is very clear on. And on the front end, what I want to say is, what we need to say about men and women is that they are co-equal image bearers of God, having the same dignity, value, and worth, and being equal on the plane of humanity. Okay? So men aren't better than women, women aren't better than men, and we should not elevate one over the other. And as Genesis chapter 2 
clearly lays out, God saw Adam, who was alone, who was made in God's image, and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, that's remarkable. Why? Because the declaration over all that was made in Genesis chapter 1 was, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. So we go from this is very good to, wait a minute, this is not good. What's not good? Adam's alone. There was, no, there was not a helper suitable for him, fit for him. And so God, you know the story, he pulls a rib out of Adam and he fashions a woman and then he brings the bride down the aisle, if you will, and he hands over Eve to Adam and there's a wedding. Genesis chapter 2, I love it. So we are going to deal with husbands and wives in marriage. That's coming, but we're not going to do that tonight. Just so you know, that, that is coming. What is the role of the husband? What is the role of the wife, biblically speaking, in marriage? That, that sermon's coming. We're not doing that tonight. We're simply looking at what does the Bible teach, the New Testament specifically, and most pointedly, the pastoral epistles, what does it say about women in ministry? Okay? So what we have is co-equal, image bearers, not one being elevated than the other. However, God has designed men and women differently on purpose, and he has given them different things to do and accomplish. Roles, if you will. There is such a thing as gender roles. Okay? That's what the complementarian position believes. We don't believe that all distinctions are flattened out. Now, you know, there are some in the culture who, wants, who want to do away with gender altogether. We want gender to be fluid. We want to be able to not just say, I'm a woman, but be a man, or I'm a man, but they're actually biologically a woman. We want to be able to move in and out of that at will. In other words, next month, I might not be what I'm claiming today. It's fluid. And so we're getting to a place where the culture wants to have multiple streams of identity in terms of of gender, and, it, and it's a sad place, okay? And, and, and there, are room, there is room for the church to enter into that conversation, but our answers will probably not be welcomed. Sorry about that. Our answers will probably not be welcomed. However, when we do enter into those discussions, we need to enter always with humility, with gentleness and respect, okay? So let's start tackling the questions. I wanted to bring to you uh, the Gospel Coalition's statement of faith on the creation of man and woman. Why would I do that? Because we as a church are not only connected to the Gospel Coalition, we are part of that network, if you will, but our statement of faith for Eternal City Church, you members know this, is the Gospel Coalition's statement of faith. And so when you become a member, you are informed by you reading it or we teaching it to you, that this is what we believe about men and women. So let's read it together, and I'll quickly overview it, and then we'll get to the Bible, because that's most important. Here is the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement on the creation of humanity. We believe that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belong to the created order that God himself declared to be very good, serving as God's agents to care for manage and govern creation, living in holy and devoted fellowship with their maker. Men and women, equally made in the image of God, 
enjoy equal access to God by faith in Jesus Christ and are both called to move beyond passive self-indulgence to significant private and public engagement in family, church, and civic life. Now, you realize those are the three uh, institutions that God set up. There they are again. The church, the family, and civic life or government. Church, family, government. The three institutions that God created. Adam and Eve were made to complement each other, meaning some uh, things were lacking in Adam that Eve fulfilled, and some things are lacking in Eve that Adam fulfills. And together, they are better and stronger than they are separate. They complement each other together. To complement each other in a one flesh union that establishes the only normative pattern of sexual relations for men and women. We'll hit that on the marriage sermon. Such that marriage ultimately serves as a type of union between Christ and his church. That's Ephesians 5. Continuing, in God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable, but rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. Notice the enriching. God ordains that they assume distinctive roles which reflect the loving relationship between Christ and the church. What's the relationship between the Christ and the church? The church submits to Jesus as its head. And Jesus lovingly sacrifices himself for the sake of the church. The husband exercising headship in a way that displays the caring, sacrificial love of Christ and the wife submitting to her husband in a way that models the love of the church for her Lord. In the ministry of the church, here's our question, both men and women are encouraged to serve Christ and to be devoted to their full potential in the manifold ministries of the people of God. The distinctive leadership role within the church given to qualified men is grounded in creation, fall, and redemption and must not be sidelined to appeals to cultural developments. Okay, And that last two sentences is where we're going to hammer the text. Okay, Should not be sidelined by cultural developments. No matter how hostile the culture gets to that sentence, we will stand. We are also a part of the Acts 29 church planting network. Acts 29 also hits this issue in one of their five distinctives. Okay? You, you hear this in the membership meetings. You hear this in the membership material. Here's the statement from Acts 29. We are deeply committed to the spiritual and moral equality of male and female and to men as responsible servant leaders in both home and and church. Tonight I'm dealing with church. The sermon on home is to come. Here's that flushed out. Both men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons, possessing the same moral dignity and value, having equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are to be encouraged equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry and service to the body of Christ and through teaching in ways that are consistent 
with the Word of God. We'll touch that tonight. Continuing, both husbands and wives are responsible to God for spiritual nurture and vitality in the home, but God has given to man primary responsibility to lead his wife and family in accordance with the servant leadership and sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. This principle of male headship should not be confused with nor given any hint of domineering control. Rather, it is to be the loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. The elders and pastors of each local church have been granted authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight and to teach, preach the word of God in corporate assembly for the building up of the body. The office of elder pastor is restricted to men. You can't get any clearer than that as far as Acts 29 is concerned. Now, here's the text. Now, Timothy, just some background. Timothy is a letter written to a young pastor, and Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. Okay, and Paul took Timothy under his wing. We don't know if his father uh, abandoned him or if he died, but his mother and grandmother show up in the text, but we don't know anything about his father. So we could say at least functionally, he's fatherless and Paul comes into that spiritual role and becomes his spiritual father. And he calls him my son in the faith. Now, Paul puts Timothy in the middle of one of the most rowdy first century cities that existed, Ephesus. Okay? Ephesus was a, a cultural center like New York City or like London. It was, a, it was a center city. And Timothy is left there by Paul to establish order, to combat false teaching, to raise up elders, and to preach and teach the word, to do the work of an evangelist. And there's six chapters devoted to the first letter and more chapters devoted to the second letter, first and second Timothy. Well, in this chapter two, he addresses men first, and then he addresses women separately. All right, I'm going to read the text And we're going to go through it verse by verse, and then we'll do some textual comparisons. But we must anchor what we believe about these things in the Word of God and not in popular opinion. So, let's read it. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, that is an explosive text, right? Some of you are mad already because I just read it. All I did was read it, and you're fired up. All right, let's start with verse 1, okay? Gentleness and respect, love and grace. Just wait till the end, okay? Wait. I desire, Paul saying, this is what I want. I want that in every place men should pray. Men are to be praying. 
Maybe this is consistent with all kind of New, text, New Testament texts. Pray without ceasing, which is given to the whole church. It's not that men only should pray. He's just saying, men, you pray. And when you pray, you lift up holy hands. This is a reference to the Old Testament where uh, men lift up their hands to God. And in ancient uh, Judaism, there was often this prayer with outstretched hands towards heaven, towards God. Without, he qualifies it here, anger or quarreling. Now, I think that says something about the disposition of men. Okay? Men tend to be angry. In fact, I've heard it said that men have two emotions, sleepy and angry. <laughs> How you feeling? I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. How you feeling? I'm really ticked, man. I just want to throw someone around. You know, no anger in your praying and no quarreling. Men, men tend to like fights, which is why they're drawn to boxing and MMA and, you know, street fights. And we, we like that. We like debates. Okay? And Paul says, no, when you pray, you are to not be angry and you are to not be quarrelsome. You're not to fight, but rather you to, to lift your hands to God. Now, now, men, there is a time to fight. And primarily, men, you should be fighting your own sin. If your eye causes you to sin, you need to pluck it out, Jesus says. If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. Go to war with your sin instead of warring with everyone else around you. Maybe it would be better if you would spend your energy fighting the sin that lives in you, that dwells in you. Use your energy for that than using your energy for fighting and quarreling and causing trouble with everyone else. It's often been said there's enough sin in you that you should be able to fight that sin and you have no energy left to fight anyone else. And it's just a loving exhortation. So Paul says for men, you guys need to pray. Lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also women. So now he's going to address women. Should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, the adorn is the outward appearance. Okay? And what he says about the outward appearance of women is that they should treat themselves with respect, and that respect is seen when you look at what they're wearing. Okay? That's what he says. Respect yourself and respect yourself in such a way to cover yourself and be in respectable apparel. How do you know it means cover yourself? With modesty. And Kevin DeYoung says, modest is hottest. Hey, there you go, ladies. Modest is hottest. And self-control. In other words, you have control of yourself. You don't need the approval of other people. You don't need the eyes to be staring at you from other people. You don't need the attention to be drawn to you. In fact, you would rather the attention not be drawn to you, especially in a corporate worship gathering where the attention is to be on one person, and that's not me. It's Jesus Christ. Okay? And so... Here's the part that ruffles a lot of people. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, you need to know something about the context. At this time, when this was written, first century Ephesus, women who were wealthy would often display their wealth by weaving it into their hair 
And they would also braid their, their wealth into their hair and do very elaborate hairstyles. And then they would wear the gold and they would wear the pearls and the costly attire. And what this said to those looking from the outside was, oh, wow, they got wealth. They got power. They got, they got it. They got it made. And so the attention was to be drawn to them. That's why you would do this. Okay, so what Paul is not doing here is he's not laying down a rule that Christian women should not braid hair, should not wear braided hair. He's not laying down a rule that women should not wear jewelry. He's not laying down a a rule that says no pearl necklaces if you're a Christian. He's not even saying that you shouldn't, you know, buy clothes that aren't from goodwill. Costly attire. He's not saying that. He's not saying, look, Marshalls, TJ Maxx, Target, you better not be shopping you know, Macy's and above. Better not be, even if you got a coupon. Sorry, ladies. Sorry. Okay? No express for you. No, rather what he's saying is it's the idea of the attention should not be drawn to you. And if that's your desire to do yourself up in such a way where you're catching stares or you're, you know, you're catching the, the side glances of men and that makes you feel kind of whole inside, that's a problem. That's what Paul's saying here. And specific to the context, this was happening in the culture, but it was also creeping into the church and causing issues. So what we could say about this prohibition is it's a principle and not very uh, specific. It's not very specific. And so we could look at verse 10 as the principle. But with, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Okay, so he's saying that godliness comes from the inside. And the godliness is displayed on the outside, how? Good works. You see that? So the idea is don't don't be so concerned with the outward appearance. Rather, if you profess godliness, it's proper that you display it in an outward way by the good things you do, by how you serve people, by how you love people, by how you care for people, by your good works. That's how you are to adorn yourself. If you want something on the outward to say something about your inside, or if you want attention to be drawn to something, let it be the good works that you do that show that you're a certain kind of person on the inside. That's what Paul's saying here. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain Quiet. Now, 11 and 12 are the, the powder keg verses. They're just waiting to explode if you step on them. Okay? But because you asked the question, here we go. Okay? The first question we have to ask about this text is what in the world does quiet mean? Right? Because look at it. It says, let a woman learn quietly. It's the qualifier. So notice they are supposed to learn. Women are to learn. They are to be, you know, Mary and Martha is that, is that scene that we could go to very easily to display this. You know, Jesus is teaching. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus with the other apostles, and she's learning. And Martha is all busy serving and getting the house ready and, you know, making drinks. And do you need some more cheese nips over there? And, and what's happening is she's so frustrated that Mary won't help. And she's like, 
Lord Jesus, don't you see what is happening here? She just sits there, and I am busy serving. Tell her to help. That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what she said. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha, you are troubled by many things, but your sister has chosen the better, and what she has chosen will not be taken from her. And what was, what was the better? It was sitting there learning from Jesus, sitting under his teaching, just like the other disciples, the men. Let a woman learn, there's the qualifier, quietly, and here's another qualifier, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain, here it is again, quiet. So here's the word. Quiet in Greek is, and I'm not good at this transliteration thing, but hasukia, hasukia. It ranges from peaceable to literally silent. That's what the word can range from. It's a word that has a wide lexical range. And so we can go to other texts in the New Testament to see how it was used. And it was only used four times. We'll look at two of them. The first is the literal quiet. Now this is Acts 22. What has happened in Acts 21 is Paul has gone into the temple and those temple managers, those who would worship at the temple were concerned because Paul was thought to have taken Trophimus, the Gentile, into the temple and that was not allowed. Into the holy places where Gentiles were not allowed to go. Now Paul did not do this because Luke tells us they assumed that he took Trophimus in there because they saw him in the city with him. And so a riot breaks out over Paul and over his Gentile companions. And literally, they are so violent towards him that Rome has to step in and they literally physically carry Paul out on their shoulders. And Paul speaks Greek to the Roman soldiers. And he's like, hey, let me talk to them in Greek. And the soldier's like, you speak Greek? I thought you were a terrorist. No, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a, I'm a traveling rabbi. I'm here to preach the good news. And, and so... He then says, let me speak to the crowd. And the Roman soldier says, okay, here you go. And here's what he says. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language or Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic, they became even more quiet They quieted down because they wanted to hear what he was going to say. And he said, and we'll wait till we go through the book of Acts to hear what he said. But the point is, the crowd got quiet. Shh, they quieted down. Here's the other sense. Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, he's admonishing them not to be lazy, not to be idle, and not to just to sit around and do nothing. Rather, you are to work and put forth effort and use your energy for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. For we hear, verse 11, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage, so this is a command, but it's also an encouragement, in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. There's the word quietly, and earn their own living, or the Greek could be translated, to eat their own bread. Now, that working quietly does not mean you can't, you can't say anything while you're working. 
Okay? It's you're peaceable. You're not a busybody. You're not causing trouble. You're not causing an uproar. You're not causing problems. You're, you're peaceable. That's what it means. Okay? And so there's the two senses of the word. Now, let's go back to the text. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I think that what is happening here is that Paul is exhorting the women to not usurp authority in the church and to not rise up and overcome the authority in the church. They are being encouraged to be peaceable and to be submissive to the authority that God has set up. Now, I want to share with you what is happening in the context of the letter, okay? So in 1 Timothy 4, same letter, just two chapters later, I'm going to read 1 to 5 and explain what's going on that causes Paul to write such a thing. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, so you're leaving the faith once for all delivered to the saints, by, here's how, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Whoa. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons that are coming through not contacting the dead, not tarot card readings, not seances and some mist comes up and then speaks the language of the people. No, rather, coming through men with smiles on their faces, women with smiles on their faces who are speaking contrary to the revealed word of God. Through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, here's what the teaching was, who forbid marriage... And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So what we can see here is that there were false teachings that Paul is combating in this letter, right? Do you see it here? He's saying, listen, some will depart from the faith and they will devote themselves to, to teachings of evil spirits that will come through people. This is already upon you and this is, you're tempted to go this way. And what is the teaching? Is that you shouldn't get married and especially with widows, we'll see this in a moment, Widow, widows should not remarry. And so forbidding marriage and requiring that you should stay away from certain foods. And we can see this also happening in Romans 14. We could see this happening in Corinthians. This was a common problem in the first century church was issues surrounding food sacrifice to idols and, and only vegetables and certain foods were, were forbidden. And so now I want to jump to the next chapter of 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 16. 
This is the issue of widows. Now, here's what you need to know about what was happening with widows. The church at Ephesus had funds set up to take care of those who had no husbands and no children or relatives that were able to help them. The church would take up this charge. Now, you remember the book of James. James says, you want true religion? This is true religion. Look after widows and orphans in their distress. The church is doing what they're supposed to be doing by looking after the vulnerable, helping those who can't help themselves, coming in with financial and support to the needy. This is what's happening here in Ephesus. But he is giving guidelines to who the church should help and who the church should not help. He says, refuse to enroll younger widows. Now, we don't know how young younger was. We just have younger. And then he qualifies what happens to younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation, having abandoned their former faith. Now, there's a clue there in verse 11 and 12 as to what exactly is happening there. And if you're not careful, you can read right over it. If they're abandoning the faith, then that means that they're probably going after non-Christian marriages. And part of the false teaching is that you should not marry. You should stay single. So even if your husband has died, you should not remarry. And so their passions to marry here overcome them, and they take husbands probably that are not Christian, that are of the culture, and that desire, that passion to be married uh, because of the false teaching causes them to abandon the faith even. So look at it again. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. So they're leaving Jesus to marry. And so incur condemnation. Well, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So they're leaving the faith for having abandoned their former faith. So the idea here is that the false teaching has crept into the church to such a degree that the widows were thinking we should not remarry because of this false teaching. It's not good to marry, forbidding marriage. And that was causing them to want to remarry, and so they would then go after unbelieving husbands and leave the faith altogether based on the false teaching. No, Paul says, no, let's correct this right now. Rather, they should get married in direct opposition to the false teaching. Look, besides that, they learn to be, so besides that, this is also what happens. They, these widows, if they're being supported by the church and not working, not using their energy, they have a lot of time to do something. What? They learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So the temptation is to go around and spread not good things. To not be busy, but to have a busy body going around causing trouble. Okay, that's what Paul says. Verse 14, so I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary, that's the devil, no occasion for slander. And the outside onlookers, no occasion for slander either. For some have already strayed after Satan. These are the ones formerly mentioned who left Christ. They've already strayed after Satan. Remember, teachings of demons. Do you see how this is all connecting? If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let 
her care for them. Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So Paul's laying down this rule for the care of widows in the church. And he's saying, look, it's a good thing to be married. Don't believe this false teaching. If they're young and they want to get married, have them get married. Have them have children. Have them raise a family. Have them look after their own family and do good to the family. That's what they should spend their time doing. Now, Paul is not saying this is for all women. You realize that. Look at the context. He's saying that there is false teaching that forbids marriage. He's saying, no, I'm combating the false teaching, and I'm saying marriage is good, and having children is good, and raising a family is good and godly, and God looks at that and says, with this I am well pleased. And he's not saying, don't, don't take it out of context and say, oh, Paul's, Paul's dissing single women. He's saying women shouldn't be single. Uh, you know, single women are less than married women. That's not at all what he's saying. He's not also saying that women who are married that can't have children are lesser than those who can and do. He's not saying that. He's specifically battling a false teaching that has crept into the Ephesian church. Now, there were probably women, we don't know this for sure, but there probably were women who were not only taken by this teaching, but were also encouraging others to be taken by this teaching. Remember, they go from house to house saying things they should not. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't permit a woman to speak or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. Now, the question is, what exactly are we talking about by remaining silent? What exactly are we talking about by not having authority? Look, exercise authority, and we're, we're not allowed to, to teach. All right, so again, in the context, look, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Notice, I've just stayed in the letter on purpose. This verse, I think, tells us exactly what he means in 11 and 12 of 2. She is to be quiet and not exercise authority. Here it is. Let the elders, that word means pastors, who rule well, exercise authority, rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Can you read it? preaching and teaching. There's what the elders do. They rule well or exercise authority and they preach and teach. And then verse 18, I just had to throw it in there because you're supposed to not muzzle the ox who is the preacher. He's allowed to eat, meaning the pastor should get paid. That's what that means. Let me read it for you. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That's a biblical justification to pay your pastor. Okay? But that's not why I brought that in. Why I brought that in was clearly in the context of a pastor, what do pastors do? They rule or they offer oversight. In fact, we'll look at Timothy 3 in a minute. They have oversight of a flock, a people, and they govern that flock with God's wisdom and with shepherdly sacrificial care, and they teach. Those are the two primary things, and those are the very two primary things that Paul forbids women to do. So what is Paul forbidding women from? Well, the very next verse is the qualifications for an elder. 
So he goes right from this discussion of women being prohibited from exercising authority and teaching to the qualifications of a pastor. So in the context of the letter, I've not left 1 Timothy. In the context of the letter, what Paul is forbidding women from doing is being pastors. That's what he's doing. And look, the qualifications for a pastor are all male. And this follows right on the heels of 2, 11, and 12. Let me read it for you. I'm not going to exposit it. We don't have time. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing if someone wants to be an elder, a pastor, an overseer, a bishop, if you like the King James. Therefore, an overseer, remember, exercising rulership, rules well, oversight, an overseer must be, and here's the qualifications, above reproach, the husband of one wife. That could be translated a one-woman man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. If you're going to be an elder, you have to be able to teach because that's what they do. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. I desire that men lift holy hands, not in anger and not quarreling not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Notice how many he's and him's are there. Husband of one wife. Now, if this was, and here's one argument that's being leveled here at Timothy by egalitarians. And I love my egalitarian friends who would say this, but I just cannot agree with them. What they say is, the context of Ephesus was that you had these these women who were taken by false teachers, and because they were trying to take charge in the church, Paul had to address them specifically, and so these instructions only apply to the church at Ephesus and not outside of that context. And the immediate problem I have with that is we have other letters in the New Testament that give qualifications for pastors. Titus 1 being one of them. Let's look at it. So Crete is an island in the Mediterranean, and Titus is the pastor there. And his charge is to establish leaders in every town where there's churches. Look at how he instructs him to establish leaders. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. What remains in order, Paul? What needs put in order? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elder is interchangeable with pastor. Pastor is interchangeable with overseer. Overseer is uh, interchangeable with bishop. It all means the same thing. It's an interchangeable word. Put what remains in order. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now watch this. Here's the qualifications again. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, one woman man, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. Here's that teaching again. Instruction in sound doctrine, sound teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's got to be able to teach what's sound, and he has to be able to, with gentleness and respect, rebuke what's not sound. Now, he moves on in chapter 2, and we don't have time to do this, but then he addresses women. And he tells women that they are to teach, but he gives a context. He says they are to, older women are to teach the younger women, and they are to instruct them in how to live out godliness as a woman. And you can read Titus chapter 2 for yourself. We just don't have time to do it right now. So what is happening here is that Paul is forbidding women the teaching office or the ruling office. That's what he's doing. He's saying that he designed men to be in the office of pastor. And if you want to argue against this, what you must do is come up with some contextual argument for this instruction. So here's the last contextual argument that you need to know that's used, and then I think it's clear from the text itself that it's not valid, okay? And here it is. There was immature women. They didn't know enough. They weren't as well-versed in the scriptures as they should have been, and so they weren't mature enough to hold the office of elder. And so Paul was forbidding these immature women And only in Ephesus, only in this specific church context was he forbidding this because the immaturity level was low. Right? They, were, they were going about from house to house and gossiping and they were, they were trying to take authority and they were not mature. That's the problem. Now, here's what you need to know from context. Context is always king when interpreting the scriptures. When Paul says, here's why I say this, we know why. And he does that. Look at this next verse. For or because. Now, when you have that right in the text, here's why I say this. He could have said, because you have immature women in the church and they need to grow and they need to become more godly. They need to be more well-versed in the scriptures. Or he could have said, because you understand that this false teaching by these women, it's not good. And so we can't have these women teaching false doctrine. No, rather he grounds his statement in creation itself, which is unchanging. Look, For or because, this is why I say women should remain silent and not exercise authority. Because Adam was formed first. Now keep in mind, if he wanted to make any other argument, this is the place to do it. And what argument does he use? Creation. The establishment of man and woman and their complementary roles from the beginning. And I don't see any other clearer way to interpret that. Any other argument that is contextual to Ephesus doesn't make sense because that was the perfect place for Paul to say, here's your contextual reason. No, instead he grounds his argument in creation. Not to mention the other texts that we could have brought in that say the same thing like 1 Peter. Like, I don't have time to do all that. But he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Remember, I will make a helper 
fit for him, suitable for him. And just so you know, that word helper doesn't mean lesser than. That word helper is used of God in the scriptures. God is our help. It's also used for reinforcements. God says to Adam, you need reinforcements. You can't do this on your own. You need backup. Like when, a, when a police officer's in trouble, he gets on his radio and he calls for backup. This is God calling for backup for Adam. Bro, you need a woman. And praise God that God decided that. And, and all the married men are like, yes, sometimes. Now, all the ones that laughed, man, that was a bad, that was, I set you up for that. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have laughed at that, brothers. That was a trick. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, in verse 13, here's what I think he's pointing to. He is pointing to the simple fact of what happened in Genesis. You read the text, and that's exactly what happened. She says it herself. When God goes to confront Adam, Adam, where are you? The woman you gave me, she did it. Is this true? The serpent deceived me. And I ate. That's all Paul is saying. He's recounting the Genesis story. Adam was not deceived. He knew full well what he was doing. He was fully conscious of his sin. He chose to directly disobey God. Rather, the woman was deceived. And interestingly, if you look at the context of the false teaching happening within the letter, it does seem to be pointing at some of the women are deceived by the false teaching and they're following after it and they're falling into the devil's trap, leaving the faith. It's in the context. Yet, yet, this verse is cryptic and hard to translate. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, so many interpretations have been offered by this verse 15. It's overwhelming. Okay, I'm going to give you, I think, the, the best two, and then I'll give you the one that I think it is. One of the best interpretations is, she, woman, will be sa- excuse me, saved through childbearing, points to the fact that in the, Genes- in the Genesis account, God promises that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Do you remember that? Genesis 3.15, you will bear a son, if you will, and this serpent will strike his heel, and in that heel strike, he will crush the serpent's head. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And so through that prophecy being fulfilled, Jesus the Savior, womankind will be saved just like mankind will be saved. That's one interpretive option. It's a good one. It's just, it doesn't seem to fit the context, does it? Halfway. I mean, he's talking about creation. He's talking about Adam and Eve. He's talking about her being deceived, but then being saved. Here's what I think it's actually saying, and I I wrote it down for you. Saved through childbearing, Jesus being born of a woman promised in Genesis 3.15, or... Saved from the snare of the false teaching, which is the snare of the devil, remember, deceitful spirits taken by Satan himself, prevalent in the church for women not to marry and bear children. This was the false teaching. 
where Paul directly says, no, I want you to marry, and I want you to bear children, and I want you to raise a family. This is good in God's sight. Direct opposition to the false teaching. And women can, by doing this, what Paul commanded, work out their salvation with fear and trembling in the God-ordained roles gifted to them. Okay, now that might sound complex. Here's all that I think that means. If God has given gender roles for men and women, then we work out the salvation we have as we exercise the Holy Spirit's power in our God-given roles. Listen, if God designed something to work a certain way, and he says, this is how flourishing will occur, you better expect that that very thing will be where Satan attacks. And so the family, in my view, and even in Ephesians 6, you know, the, con- the context of spiritual warfare comes right on the heels of instruction to the family. Satan is attacking the family with ferociousness. He's attacking the God-created institute of marriage that God created. He's attacking the roles that God designed for marriage, and Satan is always attacking the church and the roles that God set up to operate within the church. Now, with that being said, the men who lead the church, you saw the qualifications. They're daunting. I mean, they would crush any mature Christian man. However, they are the qualifications. And there is to be this kind of moral high ground in the leaders, and they are to live out their lives sacrificially for their flock, sacrificing themselves for the sake of others. And women are to teach. They are to exercise their spiritual gifts. They are to learn and grow. Women should be writing books. Women should be teaching, but they should be teaching not in the office of pastor. And I would further argue that they should not be teaching in the appointed worship gatherings in the position where the elders are supposed to be teaching and preaching, which is what is happening right now. This exercise of authority right now, speaking for God from his word, seeking to interpret the text with the best of our interpretive skills, is reserved for the office of male qualified pastors. Now, just so you realize that there's a lot of men and there's only a few who become pastors. You realize that, right? And Paul's not ever saying that all women should submit to all men. He's not saying that men, his argument is not men are superior, therefore men should lead the flock. It's not, it's not his argument. His argument is always grounded in this is the design of God, and when we operate in God's design, there is flourishing and fullness, and you better expect that that very design is where Satan will attack with the most heat. And so is it any wonder that this is an on-fire debate with not only within the church, but in the culture too? Gender and gender roles, family and the breakup of the family. I mean, this is where Satan is attacking, and we can see the effects, and some of you are casualties. Now, that being said, I love those who don't believe what I just taught you. I love them, okay? I, I could not, in good conscience, be a part of a church that has a female pastor or female elders. I could not, okay? Now, they technically could be in this church because they believe that men and women could be pastors, 
but I couldn't in good faith and good conviction be in a church led by a female pastor because I believe that that office is restricted to men. And so in this church, here's how we are seeking to empower and equip the women. Behind the scenes, for the past several months, there has been a women's ministry brewing, an equipping ministry brewing. They have been meeting regularly. Leaders have been appointed, and they are working towards a, a, a program to equip the women for the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry for women? It's the same as men, to make disciples who make disciples. Women are to fulfill the Great Commission just like men are. You know, when you look into the text, and I'm, I'm way out of time, I apologize, but it's hard to do this in 45, 55, an hour and five. It's hard to do, okay? And so th- this is my last statement, and I'm closing it down, okay? In the New Testament, there are multiple places where women are speaking and women are teaching, but they're never in the context of the authoritative preaching during a worship gathering and as a pastor, And so I read books written by women. I enjoy them. I find them very helpful. I read blogs written by women. I have discussions with women who teach me a lot. I learn from even little women in my family, my kids. I learn from them. So this this isn't a prohibition that men can never learn from women. You better not read any book written by a woman. You better not listen to a lecture by a woman. You better not have a woman professor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the office of pastor, overseer, shepherd, elder is for men, and this is God's good design for the church. And if it's his good design, we should walk in it and expect to see flourishing. Okay, now we, as I said, we will be looking into the roles of the home as well. That sermon is to come because it was one of the questions asked, like what are the specific gender roles of men and women within marriage? Uh, And so we will take that uh, upon ourselves. But what you need to know is our chief shepherd, the senior pastor of the church, as 1 Peter 5 says, when the chief shepherd appears, means senior pastor. Shepherd is interchangeable with pastor in the New Testament, and it's used very rarely. What do pastors do? They shepherd people. Jesus himself is the head of every church. And then under that head is under shepherds, little shepherds who are also sheep, amazingly. And so the chief shepherd himself loved the church in such a way that the under shepherds are to love the church in such a way. How did Jesus love the church? He gave himself up for the church, shedding his own blood, sacrificing his own self for the sake of his sheep. That's what the under shepherds are to do. And so our chief shepherd went ahead, not just as a model, giving his life for the sheep, but to accomplish something that under shepherds cannot accomplish, which is the salvation of the sheep. Do you see how the chief shepherd and the under shepherds are very distinctly different? I cannot save you. Eddie cannot save you. Justin cannot save you. No pastors can save you. One pastor can save you, friends. And it's to him that we entrust ourselves. We don't entrust ourselves to men without entrusting ourselves to the man. And we only entrust ourselves to qualified men who 
exhibit the qualifications of an elder, which should look like Jesus. So we're going to celebrate the senior pastor right now, not me, Jesus. He laid down his life for the sheep. He literally saw us as sheep without a shepherd. And he said in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold. I must, I must gather them also. We are the them. And he has gathered us to himself. And he has done this through his body broken, through his blood shed. And so we have much to be thankful for. And the good news is for pastors who do carry the burden of a flock is that the chief shepherd is ultimately the one who cares for the sheep. And he is ultimately the one who holds the sheep in his hand. And as he said, he will never let them go. For the father who has given them to him is greater than all. And so even for us who do bear the burden of shepherding the sheep, we have the chief shepherd who is the ultimate burden bearer and savior. And so that's good news for pastors too. It really is. And so pastors among us, there's several of you out here, uh, you can entrust the burden of ministry over to the capital M minister. You can entrust the pastoring to the capital P pastor, and we can lovingly, with his strength and power, shepherd the sheep that he laid down his life for, including us as, the, as those sheep. It's good news.